Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week I've decided to jump in and start a, a deep dive into Netflix's Stranger Things. So in the last episode that I did, I kind of did an overview of Stranger Things. I think I don't know, it was a couple days or a week after uh, Stranger Things aired, and because of the similarities to Stephen King uh, novels, I, I just felt that I, I, I should talk about it a little bit more. But in the in the week or so that followed, I you know I I, I don't think any of us really have stopped thinking about Stranger Things and. I just thought it was the right thing to do to, to kind of just talk about it episode by episode. So um, I've kind of like how I, I did when I, I first started the, the Stephen King cast. I, I made sure that I, I had some episodes in the can before I, I, I started uh, releasing them. So I know that this summer the these episodes that I've been putting out have been sporadic. Um, because as you know, those of you who have been listening for a while, you know that, as I said at the top of this, this episode, uh, the whole goal of the Stephen King cast was to review each of his works in the chronological order of publication, and thankfully I, I managed to, to do that, so I've just been, uh, you know, publishing, you know, some, some episodes here and there when either I've, I've had something to say or if, uh, if I've had some extra time because, those of you who are um, tuning in for the first time, I, I, I had a, uh, a daughter recently who's now four months old, so I've, I've been devoting as much time to just being in the moment uh, with her um, as much as possible. So um, right now she is taking a nap and allowing me some, some time to uh, record this episode for the first, uh, so I can review the, the first episode of Stranger Things. So if I am, uh, if I sound, I, I guess, less enthusiastic, it's because I'm trying to keep my voice down. And if the sound quality is a little bit different, it's because I'm recording in a different room in the house than I normally do. I normally record in the basement. Um, I'm recording in the kitchen, so it might be, I don't know, maybe a bit more echoey. I'm not quite sure. But, um, but regardless, there is a new episode that is that is being recorded, so I think that that's, that's awesome for... For, for everyone, it keeps me fresh, and uh, you know, it means that I get to join in in the uh, the Stranger Things conversation. So, before I get any further, I uh, I want to shamelessly plug my own stuff because, as you um, may know, those of you who have been listening for a while, you know that I've been fortunate enough to have some of my own work published. Uh, so, I just want to give everyone some some options uh, to uh, to head on out. So if you have enjoyed my thoughts on uh, my my musings of other people's entries in the, the horror genre and you want to see how well I can do taking a stab at it, there are some, some options for you. Um, if you head on over to Amazon, you can find any of these publications. One publication uh, is Dark Moon Digest, issue number 22. In that, in that magazine, uh, you'll be able to find a short story entitled Room 207. And uh, that that is written under my pseudonym. These are all written under my pseudonym of, of Cooper O'Connor. So Room 207 is, is I think, a, a fun romp that you guys will enjoy. You can also download Nine Tales Told in the Dark, issue number nine. Uh, the short story there is This World Will Eat You All the Way Up. You can get The Wax and Wane, A Gathering of Witch Tales, Witch Anthology, 
uh, and my short story is entitled Hopscotch. Uh, this August, which is this month, uh, you can get the Trists of Fate magazine. My short story is entitled Forget Me Not. And uh, coming at some point, I'm not quite sure when, uh, the, the magazine is uh, Skeptics Must Die. And my short story is entitled The Portrait. Um, so yeah, like I said, if you uh, just want to read some, some fresh, fresh new horror, uh, head on over to those magazines. I know that the, the, the publishers of those uh, ma magazines and anthologies would, would definitely greatly appreciate it. So what I want to do next, I want to I want to read a uh, listener email because, as you know, I um, I love getting email, guys. I, I can't do it without you. So this is this is our chance to to be able to converse. So if you haven't done so already, feel free to to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Now we have Katie who writes, "Hello, constant reader. I'm emailing you in regards to your review of Mr. Mercedes. I'm a huge Stephen King fan and read Carrie at an early age. I think around fifth or sixth grade." You mentioned that there's, so spoilers, guys, for Mr. Mercedes. You mentioned that there's no way that Jerome could have not been able to reach his sister and that that plot point is completely unbelievable. Uh, so what she's referring to is uh, the fact that, um, what's her name? Holly? Is it Holly? No, it's not Holly. Uh, Jerome's sister goes to the uh, the Round Here concert and Jerome is, is desperately trying to get a hold of her, and he can't. And I, I kind of called BS on that because this day and age, everyone has their phones glued to them. So I felt as though he could have gotten a hold of her. So uh, Katie continues to write, However, I've been to concerts or just places where there are lots of people in a concentrated location, and I'm not sure what the technical term for this is, but it seems like there's so many people using their phones that it jams up the airwaves. In any case, when you try and use your phone in a place like this, it's very difficult to even send text messages, let alone answer your phone. So I just wanted to let you know that maybe this is a stretched plot or too convenient, but it's actually pretty possible. Anyways, I think that your podcast is great. I've been, in your words, binge listening for the last two weeks at work, and now I've finished your works reviews, and I'm on your list reviews. I wholeheartedly enjoy all of your analysis and commentary. Are you going to start a different podcast? I enjoy listening to you talk about Stephen King, and I think I would enjoy listening to you talk about just anything. Your analysis is so on point and definitely makes me look at things that I haven't thought about in years differently. You've actually inspired me to buy a few of Joe Hill's books as well. I haven't gotten to them yet because I'm still knee-deep in my Stephen King phase. As I've just finished The Dark Tower for the first time and I want to read everything King again, I just want to see all of the tie-ins. Sorry this was longer than I anticipated. I'll have more to say, but I'll save it for a later time. Say thank you for doing your wonderful podcast. Long days and pleasant nights, Sigh, Katie. So Katie, thank you for, for writing in. Um... I'm not going to do another podcast. If I were to do a podcast, however, a different podcast, there's, um, I guess, only two that I would probably be able to do. One would be a Stephen, I'm sorry, <laughs> one would be a Twin Peaks podcast. Um, and who knows? I mean, with the, the revival uh, of Twin Peaks coming, maybe. Maybe I'll do a, a Twin Peaks podcast. Um, and the other one that I would do would be a Lost podcast, but I think that um, Matt Lafferty, who uh, who uh, hosted the podcast, Looking Back on Lost, 
actually served as an inspiration for for how I I structured the the Stephen King cast. And so, if I were to do a Lost podcast, it would just be exactly the same the the way that that Matt Lafferty did it. So there'd be no point in me in in me doing it because he did it just just so well. So if you are interested in in Lost and you've liked what I've done with Stephen King, then I I strongly recommend everyone head on over to uh, looking back on Lost because it's a fan it's a phenomenal, fantastic, fantastic. Um, Podcast, I think that that everyone uh, will enjoy. So I don't know. I in when it comes to the Stephen King cast, um, I, I think that you know this this podcast allows me now that I've caught up with everything to be able to to kind of sneak in some stuff here and there. So for instance, I'm I'm, I'm reviewing Stranger Things, and I've been able to tackle some Joe Hill stuff. And uh, this October, I'll be reviewing Jonathan Madbury's Pine Deep trilogy. So I'm able to branch out a little bit. From, from Stephen King to be able to tackle some, you know, Stephen King-inspired or Stephen King, uh, you know, the works that are very similar to Stephen King or, you know, the works of those that are related to Stephen King. So I don't know, I don't know what the future holds in regards to that. And, you know, as, as we head further and further closer to the, the Dark Tower movie and the It movie, I'll definitely continue to provide updates Um as, as these updates are happening and kind of talk about, you know, how I feel about these updates and, you know, what I think this means for the the, the, the movies and the production and, and how these stories might play out on the big screen. So, hey, as long as there's Stephen King content out there, there will definitely be content for the Stephen King cast one way or another. So um, it might not be on a weekly or multiple times throughout the week basis uh, the, the way that it, it had been for the, the first the first year and a half of publication, but you know, I'll, I'll definitely continue to, to plug, um, the, sorry, sorry, pump some stuff out as, uh, as, as there's stuff to talk about. Okay. So with, with that done guys, if you, uh, like I said, if you, uh, want to share your thoughts, feel free to write in at Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. Ooh. And ominously, as I look at my computer screen right now, I don't have my, I don't have my computer plugged in, and the battery percentage right now is at 19%. I don't know what that means, guys, um, but I think that fans of the, the Dark Tower probably will get a kick out of that. Okay, so now let's see. We're, we're about 10 minutes or so into this. I said that this was going to be a Stranger Things uh, edition, so Stranger Things... Uh, let's get into it. Episode one of Stranger Things. Let, let me just read the the, the Wikipedia, um, the the Wikipedia summary of Stranger Things episode one. Um, so unlike the 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 episode, I'm sorry, the the Wikipedia summaries for a lot of the Stephen King novels that that I have done and the Stephen King. Uh, movie adaptations that, that I've covered as well. Uh, the Wikipedia summaries have been pretty in-depth, but with Stranger Things being so fresh um, in, and so new, I, I, there hasn't... According to Wikipedia, there aren't very long summaries here, so, um, so it's not as in detail as, as this portion of the podcast usually is. So Wikipedia says for episode one, in 1983, in a U.S. Department of Energy laboratory in the town of Hawkins, Indiana, a scientist is attacked by an unseen creature. Will Byers, a 12-year-old boy, vanishes after encountering the creature while riding his bike home from a Dungeons & Dragons session with his friends. 
The next day, a young girl with a shaved head and a hospital gown appears at a local diner. The owner, Benny, takes pity on her and feeds her before calling the social services. A woman posing as a social worker arrives and shoots Benny. Armed men search the diner for the girl, but she escapes. Will's friends, Lucas, Mike, and Dustin, find her in the woods as they search for Will. And that's so funny, reading that uh, summary. You know, as you'll see in my review, just the... Uh, I I don't I don't know if that's that's how I would summarize um, this particular episode. It's funny that the only actor that is listed here is Benny, uh, the actor played by Chris Sullivan. Uh, which to me, that's not the actor. Nothing and nothing against Benny, but that's just definitely not the actor that I would I would I would point out um, in this. But that's that's the joy of Wikipedia. You're you're never quite sure what you're what you're going to get. So on to my review. So the, the setting uh, is established right away. It's November 6th, 1983, Hawkins, Indiana. And with the setting playing such an important part of this story, it is a great choice on the Duffer brothers to establish this quickly and effectively um, with the, the words on the screen. Now, we should point out here that the first thing that we see are the stars in the sky. Now, this is a running motif that we're going to see with a number of the episode intros. For everyone checking off their nostalgia boxes at home, this might invoke E.T., a movie that clearly served as a source of inspiration. Or it could invoke The Thing, or any number of the sort of they-came-from-the-stars types of movies. Regardless, um, I'm just a fan of stars. I mean, that, that is a, it's a dumb thing to say, I know. Um, but there's something about small towns and the, the giant tapestry of the cosmos above. Whether the characters discuss their place in the vastness of space, the fact that we begin with the glimpse of the sky above places our characters into a proper context. It makes their stories insignificant. These are stories that will play out in a blink of an eye and will be regarded by the cosmos with indifference. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is because of the desolation of space. It also makes these stories unbelievably important because they might just be the only stories occurring in existence. The camera pans below, giving us a glimpse of the Hawkins, Indiana um, setting, specifically, as the info card tells us, the Hawkins National Laboratory, having something to do with the U.S. Department of Energy. With the stars giving way to this base, we're going from the macro to the micro, and we'll get smaller in scope the more we meet these characters. From space, to the government, to the adults, to the children. Subconsciously, it makes our characters feel like they're up against insurmountable odds. The government, and the government for our children, is as complicated as space itself. By the way, it was at this point when I was already sure that this show had me wrapped around its little finger. I mean, the sounds of the nightlife surrounding this seemingly quiet government building really put me in this scene. Those peaceful sounds are immediately replaced by the blaring alarm within the government building. This, along with the strobing lights illuminating the frightened scientists, immediately invoked the Charles Campion escape from the beginning of the stand. And then we begin to know our stars, Mike, Lucas, Dustin, and Will. We get kids in the throes of them using their imagination, and it's so endearing, guys. You immediately like these kids, and you also get a sense of how exhausting it must be for their parents. It reminds me of a scene in It, when Richie's mom thinks that she didn't understand them. 
we get our first glimpse of Mike's dad who just nails that disaffected parental figure who provides but doesn't really care. He has maybe three lines in the whole show, but they're so on point, it's comedy gold. First comes here with, listen to your mother, as he fiddles with a TV antenna. As the boys leave Mike's house, we meet Nancy and learn a little bit about her, that she's dating a jerk named Steve, and that she used to, according to Dustin, be nice. With four minutes in, this plot point has already been seeded. To me, it shows the amount of control the Duffer brothers have when crafting their story. Comes out with a little bit of character interaction between her and Dustin, and a little bit of exposition um, as the boys talk about her. The character interaction between Dustin and Nancy reveals him to be a thoughtful, sweet young kid, and she to be the stereotypical, holier-than-thou, annoyed-at-her-little-brother's-friend's teenager. That character is shaded with the quick conversation between the boys on how she's changed. This change will form the crux of her character journey throughout the show, and what could have been a one-note 80s slasher final girl caricature is made out to be an actual character. Nancy, by the way, I'm sure, is named after Heather Legenkamp's character from Nightmare on Elm Street, also named Nancy. Um, and she will take a very proactive journey later in the show, much like that character from the um, classic uh, 80s horror movie. Mike and Will have a quick conversation with heavy foreshadowing of how the Demogorgon got Will during their Dungeons & Dragons escapade. And then Lucas, Will, and Dustin race home through the dark streets. I mean, this looks awesome, guys. And so here's the thing. And I'm, I'll talk about this here and there. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about nostalgia and uh, the role of nostalgia with the success of this show. And I don't know, maybe I can't argue it because this, to me, does speak very personally to, to my own childhood. Racing through dark streets and just racing through streets, period, is, is something that defined my childhood. So to see it, you know, recreated on the screen is, is always going to be something that, that I respond to. However, I mean, I, I like to believe that I, you don't need to have experienced that to... To, to get something out of this scene. I think the Duffer brothers are, are good enough at, at being able to, to craft the freedom that these kids have um, and the, the, the safe fright, I guess I would call it, that, that comes with, with just kind of you know being a kid um, on the streets at night. I mean, it sounds a lot more dangerous than it actually is. I mean, as we're going to see in a moment, it actually is dangerous, but for the majority of kids that... that prowl that's not even the right word but just are outside at night i mean it's it's not as dangerous as the 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 media might might make it out to be and you know they'll you'll always have that generation that says well back in my day it was safer and back in my day you could do that but i mean you can still do it today i mean you can um and i guess just in general guys i please let's just not be apocalyptic here and think that everything's or that everything is terrible and things used to be better i think that i've talked about this before on the stephen king cast but i have been thinking a lot about it lately with the election being what it is here i go here i go it's another another tirade um but uh but john steinbeck when he wrote um east of eden has a section in there where you got these two old timers kind of just humming and hawing and complaining on their porch as the 
1899 rolls into 1900, and, and they're complaining and they're, they're lamenting the, the future because in their minds it's, it's not going to be as good as it was when, you know, they ruled the roost, so to speak. And there's that classic line. Maybe it's not classic, but it's definitely something that I clombed onto, and it was, oh, but strawberries will never taste so sweet, and the thighs of women have lost their clutch. And to me, it's just... It's just so, I mean, you know, it's 2016. We're so far removed from that, but the sentiment still remains among those that are of a certain age and looking towards the future with, with fear and apprehension and, and disgust and, and the belief that things were better back in the day or safer back in the day or that strawberries tasted sweeter back in the day. I mean, some things are universal and strawberries will taste like strawberries and the thighs of women will always have their clutch. And kids will be able to ride bikes on the streets of America. It's as simple as that. And there's going to be politicians out there that resemble used car salesmen uh, in Under the Dome that are going to tell you that things are awful. Things are not awful. Things are actually pretty comfortable. Um, so before we go and uh, deliver the nuclear codes to a madman, let's just remember, take a deep breath and remember that things are kind of okay. There's things that we can improve, but things are okay. And I think that I am being summoned by my child who has awoken. So I'm going to put a pin in this and get back to it in a little bit. Uh, so I'm, I'm back. Uh, let's see how this goes. I've, I've got her here with me right now. Um, seems pretty chill, but uh, that, that could change. She could get hungry. So let's, let's, let's see how far I'm able to get with this because I really want to get this out as soon as possible. But as I was saying... Um, the kids are racing home through the dark streets. Uh, Will rides past the Hawkins lab and encounters the real-life Demogorgon, uh, who is never really given a name on the show other than the monster. And I, I hope that, that we definitely get something that they can call it. Um, I, I think the Duffer brothers might have referred to it as uh, Petal Face, maybe, due to spoiler. Oh, and just spoiler, guys. I mean, for the rest of the show, I mean, this is, I'm kind of placing this within context of the other episodes. So just spoilers, spoilers on. I'm not going to necessarily go in deep with the other episodes, but I might spoiler things, you know, here and there. Um, so I would um, probably wait until the, the, the end of the, the show of uh, Stranger Things before heading into these episode-by-episode episode, uh, reviews. So, I mean, I think the Duffer Brothers have referred to this as Petal Face. I'm not quite sure, but um, those of you who, um, you know, have finished, uh, you'll know that the, the creature, you know, looks like a, a flower. Um, its face looks like a flower opening. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that that's definitely one, one option. You know, but the kids never really refer, refer to it that much as Demogorgon, um, but they, 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 they definitely could. Uh, either way, I just, I'm going to just call it, you know, throughout these reviews as either the Demogorgon or the monster or Petalface. I do like Petalface. I think that's pretty cool. But anyway, the, the, the reveal of this monster is great, guys. It's great. Um, just with the first thing we see is just a, a sudden shocking shadowy figure on the road i mean it's it does make you gasp and what had been until this moment just like a really well actually no because we did have that that opening that was pretty scary but you know i think that we might get lulled there in the in the in the interactions with the kids you know we we might forget you know what kind of story that that we're in here um and so when will sees that 
that monster um, down the street. It's it, it's a great great visual, and this show is just full of great visuals. But it's a, it's also a fantastic moment, and you know it's followed by Will having a very realistic uh, and very awkward bike crash. I like how it's not huge and cinematic. He doesn't go tumbling down a ravine. It's just clumsy. It's clumsy, and he falls off the bike. And I I just I like that that touch. And the show continues to speak directly to me um, as, as Will races through misty woods to reach his home. Um, just the setting and, and the, the, the shot compositions in this show are just spot on. We get another great shot of the monster in the dark, and this whole scene feels like the best of signs. We continue to get establishing shot of the, the, the buyer's home and their yard, um, Will winds up barricading himself in the shed with a rifle, but the monster sneaks up behind him. And throughout the entire sequence, we're, we're, we're seeing the relationship between the monster and electricity. Um, this has been teased, and this all is punctuated by the dimming light bulb, which reveals an empty shed, and Will has been taken. The scene fades to black, and boom, guys, boom. Those credits... Seed fades to black, the credits hit. I can't speak for everyone, but this moment, pff, I mean, I had drank the Kool-Aid um, eight minutes into this show. I know that for the rest of this hour and the subsequent seven hours that are going to follow, this show has me. I know that's going to be able to do whatever it wants with me. That's how much I had fallen in love so early on with this show. I mean, there's so much confidence in what the Duffer brothers were doing and how well they set out to realize what they were attempting to construct that I had no doubt that the show was going to live up to my highest expectations. And I'm happy to say that it did just that. And this, these opening eight minutes that just go straight into the, the credits and the effectiveness of these credits. I mean, it's so well done, so confident, um, and just so good. I mean, so much has been said about these opening credits. I can't add anything to it. You know, I mean, as you know by now, or maybe you don't, but you should, you know, the, the series logo is intended to invoke the classic Stephen King font, and the music, or is, the music is, is Carpenter-inspired. It's just, it's just, it's just done so well, you know, but it doesn't end. You know, with that logo for Stranger Things. I mean, the, the intro music includes the, the chapter number and titles for each episode, further establishing that sense of a Stephen King novel. You know, in this case, we get chapter one, The Vanishing of Will Byers, which could easily be the title of a, a book out of the 70s, if you think about it. Doesn't that feel like a, like a 70s kind of, you know, dime store paperback novel, The Vanishing of Will Byers? Anyway, credits are over. We've met the kids. Now it's time to begin to meet the adults. First with David Harbour, who plays Chief Hopper. Now this is a perfect way to introduce this character. He's a mess. He's sleeping on his couch, hungover, chain-smoking, pill-popping. When he puts on his uniform, we get an immediate impression that he's unfit to wear it. Now this is something that he's going to earn over the course of the series. And if they didn't establish him the way they do here, we won't be rooting for him as much. It's a fantastic way to introduce this character, who to me is the MVP. Um, he's the, he's the heart of of the show, and I'll definitely take talk a lot about Hopper and David Harper um, a lot as as my review of of these episodes go on. But from there, we meet Winona writers Joyce Byers and her older son Jonathan, and they quickly discover that Will is missing. 
And through the character interaction between these two, we learn of their financial troubles and their good-natured ways. You know, I mean, these are this is not a mother that is, uh, you know, neglectful of her kids uh, because she, you know, is too busy going to the bar or just doesn't care about them. She cares about them, but she's limited financially. And, you know, you get the sense that maybe she's made some, she doesn't make the best choices in life. You know, we'll meet her ex um you know, later, and that guy is, I mean, he's a, he's a grade A uh, jerk. So, um, you know, we get the sense that maybe, you know, that she's someone that, you know, might have some problems and, you know, they, they talk about her, um, Lonnie does talk about her, not anxiety, um, not delusions, I can't remember the term, but I mean, she definitely suffers from, from something that some sort of mental mental issue that that might get in the way here and there but she's she's kind and she loves her kids and as we can see i mean she never gives up so i think that that's definitely important to note but i i like the introduction of her character and of jonathan i'll definitely be talking about jonathan um more throughout this review because there's a lot to say about jonathan um so their struggles here are are juxtaposed with the more affluent home um, and the interactions of Mike's family, who she calls to see if um, if they've seen Will, and this is it's hard to watch knowing that she's looking for him and you know calling the family only to to get the bad news that he's not there. It, it to me it, it reminds me of the beginning of of Twin Peaks when uh, Grace Zabriskie's uh, character Sarah is looking for Laura, can't find Laura, and just naturally just starts making phone calls and with each phone call um, revealing that Laura is not there and she can't find Laura, there's a sense of dread and panic that begins to to possess that character. And anyone that has not seen Twin Peaks, please guys, you you, you if you <laughs> if you have finished Stranger Things and you are listening to this right now and you're like, oh this guy keeps talking about Twin Peaks, you, you seriously need to, to stop. And go watch Twin Peaks um, to talk about God, you know, a master artist um, telling a story. David Lynch and Mark Frost, because I don't think that Mark Frost gets a lot of credit. I think that he he really helps ground uh, David Lynch's uh, you know kind of dreaminess. Um, man, the story that the, those two guys tell is 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 amazing, and all the writers that that worked on the show. And see, season two gets a lot of crap thrown at it but it's still there there are some episodes in season two that are just as good if not better than anything in season one and you have to work your way through some episodes in season two but um i wouldn't i wouldn't trade season two for for anything in the world anyway um the the sense of dread begins to settle upon joyce as she realizes that finding will is not going to be as as easy and that something might be wrong we check back in with the kids. You know, they arrive to school. They are beset upon by two bullies, one of whom is appropriately uh, named Troy. Uh, and I talked about this, I believe, in my kind of overview of Stranger Things in the last episode. But this is not a name. You don't see kids being named Troy. Hi, honey. Uh, you don't see kids being named Troy nowadays. That was very much, um, you know, a, a name that was given to kids um, in the 70s. Uh, so I mean to to have this story set in '83 with a kid named Troy, it's and a bully named Troy. That's just it's just so fitting. I just and it's not like I had a bully named Troy. In fact, one of my brother's friends was named Troy. Great guy. But I mean to to me that's just such a just such a perfect bully '80s name. And 
you know, you, you can't have a King-inspired tale of childhood adventure without the bully archetype. And Troy lives up to the, the, the Stephen King archetype of bullies that we have seen before, most famously with, with Henry Bowers. Now, we check back in with Nancy. We get a better sense of who she is now. We, we met her through the eyes of Dustin, um, but her walking through the, the hallways, we were introduced with, with her and her best friend, Barb, who I would say probably won the internet this summer. Barb. Poor Barb, guys. I mean, the put-upon best friend. Barb, who has to sit by and watch her friend drift away from her. Um, it's sad, and it's sad because it's so recognizable. It's something that we've seen before, you know. One thing about youth, whether it's middle school kids or it's high school friends, um, allegiances shift, people grow, people change, um, people uh, are promoted from one social circle to the next, and it doesn't mean that they're going to be able to bring all their friends with them, and that's that's the barb. Ah, it's just so sad. They discuss Dreamboat Steve, and Barb discusses the cool factor here. Nancy making out with Steve has elevated her position, and Barb sadly just puts it out there. I mean, she's not she's not beating around the bush here. She she asks her to to remain friends, you know, even though she's gonna be hanging out with the cool kids now. Then we meet the off disgust Steve, who just mauls Nancy in the bathroom and is encouraging her to to give into her baser her baser urges by quote unquote studying with her that night you know and this actor uh just nails nails guys the the the, the douchiness of this character at the beginning of this journey um which is so amazing because you know, I, I, I think, I'm not going to speak for everyone, but I mean, I really grew to like this character as the story progresses, and um, I'll talk about it later, but I think that he has the probably the most heroic moment uh, in the show. I, I just really like watching Steve grow as a character, but, you know, it, it's not going to mean anything if we don't see him uh, where he starts out here, and he's just your, your classic just kind of jerk boyfriend character or the jerk love interest character that we've seen in, in so many teenage uh, romantic uh, coming of age movies and so we're, we're starting to set up some tropes here right you know we have the you know the kind of nerdy best friend you know the girl that is kind of drifting away from her she's interested in the, the kind of jock um you know jerk love interest and soon we're gonna get jonathan the the sensitive alternative and the duffer brothers play with these tropes and expectations um in ways that i feel really make nancy stand her ground as a character and kind of break free from the shackles of these tropes in a way that that made me very happy um and then hopper arrives to the police station in one of my favorite sequences um, an establishing of the police office that is inspired by Chief Brody's interactions with Polly in the Amityville, uh, sorry, in the Amity, my bad guys, uh, police department from Jaws. Um, and with many aspects of this show, I mean, do we classify this as a homage, a ripoff? I mean, is this scene so infused within the Duffer Brothers that, that, it, that it comes out naturally? Or... Did they want to create a sensibility within the in this office, so they just pulled from Steelberg or all of the above? Is it directly inspired? No, it's it's probably probably directly inspired. I mean, we do get the the shark attack typewriter shot recreated here as Joyce and Hop discuss Will's disappearance. So, um, but I, I a lot of people have talked about um, these homages and how distracting they can be. And in fact, I've talked about my dislike of trying to pinpoint them. Um, 
because to me I feel it, it takes away from the success of what the Duffer brothers have done um, because it, it's more than just the the identifying you know the the sources of inspiration I mean I, I think that they're telling a very original tale um, that yeah might be reminiscent of some other things but uh, I don't know I mean to, 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 to get caught up on those sources of inspiration I, I just feel like you, you lose something here that that's definitely worth um, exploring and that's 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 stranger things the the, the story and, and the characters more than anything else so Joyce implores him to, to find her son and we cut to the Hawkins lab we're introduced to the story's villain Matthew Modine's dr. Brenner a group of scientists suit up and arm themselves as they descend into the bowels of this facility that we had seen the night before um, as the setting for a horror movie in which a scientist was attacked by the creature. Now, as they walk through these hallways, we see strange particulates floating through the air as the lights blink on and off. Strange fungus grows on the walls. And in the main chamber, a massive, throbbing, black and red mess of tendrils and roots is pulsating on the walls. Ominously, they refer to a girl who immediately meet walking barefoot through the woods. This girl, Eleven, or L to the boys, sneaks into a diner and is stopped by the diner's owner, um, who does what he can to help her, which will unfortunately cost him his life. Now, when I had started watching this, and I didn't talk about this before, but um, meeting L and knowing that there's a monster out there and the fact that they're both somehow connected to this facility, it really gave me a, a Watcher's vibe. And for those of you who um, have never read Watchers by, by Dean Koontz, uh, you know, you probably should. You know, I mean, I've kind of made fun of Dean Koontz, and I think that D Dean Koontz gets a, a bad rap. But, I mean, the, the guy tells. He's really good at telling stories. And Watchers is um, one of his first books, and it, it tells the tale of a monster that has broken out of a research facility. And um, in one of Dean Koontz's most famous Kuntzisms, uh, so has a golden retriever that has been experimented on as well. And so just the fact that these two experiments are, are related to each other in a way, and one's the force of good and one's the force of evil, it's, it's, it's very reminiscent here of, of, uh, of L and the, uh, the, the monster both breaking out of the Hawkins lab. So I would definitely check out uh, Watchers because um, that's, that's definitely a fun one. Uh, Corey Haim, was Corey Haim? In the in the movie version, there was a movie version, and it's too bad for Dean Koontz because um, I mean this was at the height of, of Stephen King uh, movies coming out, and there was a movie, but I don't even I don't know if it was like a direct to video or like a, I don't know what it was, but it, it's not very good, and I just feel like it could have been if it was done differently. Uh, I feel like it could have in an alternate universe. I feel like there's probably as many uh, Dean Koontz adaptations as there are Stephen King. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Oh, sorry, honey. I know we're Dean Koontz fans. She wants a Dean Koontz alternate reality where there's Dean Koontz adaptations everywhere. Okay. Um, so, uh, back in school, we meet the real hero of this story, the science teacher, Mr. Clark, who watches as the boys play with the, the new radio, uh, that the school has received. Their joy is quickly snuffed by the party pooper Jim Hopper, who has come for information regarding the missing Will. Now, this is a fun scene with the boys bickering amongst each other while he, no doubt still hungover, has just no time for their disagreement over Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. 
again, guys, these kids, the show doesn't work without them. Their interactions are spot on. You got Lucas the hothead, Mike the quiet leader, Dustin the thoughtful one. They're distinct, so when they're placed together, their personalities just bounce off one another in fun and authentic ways. Joyce, not relying on Hopper to do all of the work, continues her search for Will, investigating Fort Byers, sorry, Castle Byers, the bargain bin alternative to a tree fort. Now, again, this is in keeping with the characters. They wouldn't have been able to afford the two-by-fours needed to construct a legit treehouse. Castle Byers is made out of branches and sticks cobbled together from the surrounding woods. As Joyce approaches, we discover it's a flashback Joyce in sunnier times, displaying that she's a cool mom, taking Will to Poltergeist, a movie that also involves mothers and their children and also involves the mother entering another dimension to save the child. With the flashback over... We begin what has become 2016 version of what was forever immortalized by actor Harold Perrineau on Lost. Lest you forget, may I present you the early 2000s depiction of a father looking for his son. I will. Walt! 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 Walt stays with me. Walt! 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 I'm not going back without Walt! Where are you, man? Walt! Let take me! Come take me! I'm coming for Walt! I'm not leaving him out here! Walt! 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 Don't you ever say his name again! Ever! I'm his father. My boy. My boy. Letting you near my boy. They took my son. Stay away from my son. I'm gonna get back my son. They took my son. Where's my boy? They took my son. Where the hell is my son? Son. You're not taking my son. Oh, my son. You see my son? They're not taking my son away. I'm getting my son back. Get you with my son again. I'll kill you. That's right, guys. Will is the new Walt. And if everyone uh, drank a sip of beer every time a character shouted Will's name, the hospital would be full of alcohol poisoning patients by the end of the first episode alone. But remember, Will isn't the only missing child here. As we check back in with Eleven, who is now in the care of the show's most intimidating protector. And what a fantastic way to play this. The diner owner is a hulking bear of a man, Benny. He screams protection through his sheer size. Um, and defense, like he, he's like a wall. You don't expect anything to be able to get through him. Now, the Duffer brothers will subvert our expectations when he's dispatched quickly and ruthlessly by the series' most frightening character, I would say, a stick-thin woman who is the embodiment of a bird of prey. Now, remember, the alternate dimension here is called the Upside Down, and our predictions are turned upside down with moments like this. This tiny girl is actually a weapon of destruction. This burly man is dispatched by a woman half his size. He's not able to protect Eleven, but an 11-year-old boy is. Hopper, meanwhile, begins to realize that there might be legitimacy to Will's disappearance as the cops find Will's bike in the woods. We get a shot of Hawkins Lab uh, people listening to the phone messages in a proto-Snowden world. One conversation is between Joyce and the uh, girlfriend of her ex, Lonnie. And we begin to see the unraveling of this character who continues to establish the upside-down rules of the show with her 
falling apart and the son, Jonathan, having to soothe her. This, along with the upside-down qualities of Elle and her would-be protector, along with the pr presentation of Hopper as a pill-popper with the courage of a gunslinger, the setting and the conflict of the show was interwoven in the characters themselves. It's visited by Hopper, who arrives with the bike, and the visual of him coming towards the door with the bike speaks volumes without the characters having to say anything at all. I know that I've talked about Twin Peaks already, but it, it's it's like that scene in the first episode where, where um, Leland spots Harry Truman entering the, the Great Northern Hotel. Um, again, for those of you who haven't seen Twin Peaks, you, you really are doing yourselves a, a disservice. Um, and and this, this visual of, of Hopper showing up with the bike, I mean, it's not nearly as devastating as that moment, but it's it's still a rough moment. And Hopper's investigation takes him to the shed where Will has uh, disappeared. And it's at this point that Hop realizes that something is really wrong. And he tells his men to, uh, to order a search party. That night at Mike's house, there's a strained dinner with Mike and Nancy's mom having to lay down the law on each of her children while dad focuses on drinking his iced tea. Ted is so oblivious to the goings-on of his family that it's, it's just such a delight. And the real hero of the show returns, Mr. Clark, member of the search committee, and introduces himself to, to Hopper. Here we learn the truth about Hopper, which puts the self-medicating into proper context. He's a deeply wounded man because his daughter had died four years before, something he can't even admit to, uh, to, to Mr. Clark. And I don't know why I say even uh, can't admit to Mr. Clark. I don't know why he would want to admit it, but we, we see that, that just how deeply affected he is by this and, and, and the wounded nature to this character who might have just seemed like a kind of a, a loser at first, but, but now we see why he is the man that, that he is. The boys meet up to launch their own search party, and on his way out of his house, Mike sees Steve attempting to answer to enter Nancy's room with a puzzled look of helplessness on his face. It's these little moments that make the show work as well as it does. And then we get a fantastic scene in the diner, putting Jefferson Airplane's white rabbit to good use as the government suddenly and ruthlessly dispatches Benny in order to apprehend Eleven. I mean, this scene, maybe more than the others, made me think of the best moments of the shop in the pages of Firestarter. It's so, so good, so well done. And meanwhile, Steve and Nancy are playing their parts in a completely different movie, by design, so that's not a knock. I mean, Nancy begins her arc in a John Hughesian tale and ends her arc as the heroine of an 80s slasher film. Now, I'll get to that in more detail in episode 8 and throughout the subsequent episodes, but I love watching her um, and Steve as, as her journey progresses. And then back at the buyer's home, Joyce and Jonathan look through Jonathan's photos as they discuss Will. Their love for each other and for Will seems to summon him as he calls on the phone. We will never get Will's perspective when he's in the upside down, but I like that when Joyce says that, he, that, that he's close, she's correct. He is there, and as they're bonding, he's attempting to comfort them. So watching it um, on a rewatch, you, you really catch these things, and these things make sense. At first, this is it's just it's mysterious. Why is the phone ringing? You know, is it um, is it ominous? Is it is it is it sinister? It's not. 
It's a boy on the other side in the upside-down version of his home sensing his parents, maybe hearing his parents being able, or his, his mother talking to him and him trying to just be there with them. And he is, just on a different plane of reality. So there's lots of unknowns with the upside-down, but whether or not it's explained, there's that relationship between electricity and the two worlds that we see you know, with the dimming of the light bulb, when the, the creature uh, takes will, or the, the dimming of the, the, the flashlights um, on the, or the, the headlamps on the bikes, or the, the blinking on and off of the, the fluorescent lights in the laboratory. Um, so we definitely get that relationship there that somehow it's a, maybe a conduit, you know, maybe it's, um, you know, how we're able to communicate, or electricity is takes on a, a different. Um, kind of energy property in, in, in this other world. I don't know, but I look forward to kind of learning more about it um, in season two. The boys, meanwhile, are in the woods, in the rain, and they discover Eleven. Using the parlance of the gunslinger, our cotet has begun to form. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of Stranger Things Chapter 1. The Vanishing of Will Byers. And for all intents and purposes, it is the conclusion of this first episode reviewing Stranger Things Episode 1, um, which is perfect because my little lady is, is being very patient, but I think that she's probably bored. Uh, so I'll go play with her. And, uh, okay, guys, so I uh, will continue my rewatch. I will continue to, to put out um, these episodes. And like I said, I, I do have to at some point get my review of Cell out there. Um, so just warning, if you have not watched Cell and you're kind of curious, don't! Don't do it! It's awful! Um, in the meantime, if you haven't done so, head on over to iTunes, guys, because the more reviews I get, um, the, the more legitimate the Stephen King cast is, um, in the world of podcasting, and, uh, so if you have enjoyed these episodes, um, and any of the episodes that I've done, um, uh, a kindly review would, would help me out. Come in, come in. Would, uh, would really help me out. So uh, so go on and do that. Feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Cast.